0: Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. My guest is Claudine Gallagher, and she wants to be able to talk about her experiences with the Mormon Church. She's going to be speaking this week and also next week when you hear more about her life, and the life of her children as her life started to go through some changes. She was born and raised in the Seattle area and now lives in Santa Barbara. She's married and has three adult children, two boys and a girl, and she was an active Mormon for 27 years. She was baptized at the age of 19 and got married in the temple at 23. And she has a master's in English from BYU, Brigham Young University. Her faith in Mormonism was put to the ultimate test, she says, when her oldest son began showing what she calls signs of church-induced trauma. And in her effort to help her son, she began researching areas of the church history that she hadn't looked at before. And what she says she found were patterns of deception, and then she experienced her own religious trauma. And it was something that was the catalyst for her to suddenly question things and to make a change. She's only speaking from her experience and can't speak about others, but she has done a lot of research about what can help people who are leaving what she refers to as high-demand religions. She's also become certified as a life coach and began one-on-one work with those who have left hard-to-leave religions like Mormonism, as she describes it. And she wants to be able to see what she can share of her experience that would be helpful to others. So here is the beginning of her story. Here's Claudine. Okay, so I am very happy To have Claudine in my office this morning, talking to all of you, we're going to be broaching a subject that we haven't yet talked about on the podcast and it has been mentioned here and there, but not really explored to this extent. So I'm really excited for this opportunity for you to be able to share not only what you know, what you've learned, but what you've experienced firsthand. And so can you introduce yourself just to start out with?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I'm Claudine Gallagher. And I was raised in a home without any religion. Mm -hmm. Um, When I was 15 years old, my great grandmother died in my arms. Mm. And this sent me on a journey to really want to understand death. It was so confusing to me and So I began seeking answers. Maybe a year after my grandmother died, there was an accident in our neighborhood where a young LDS boy was shot and killed. Mm -hmm. And I ended up going to that funeral. And I was intrigued and confused by the people there who seemed to know, what happened Mm -hmm. after death, who seemed to have a peace and, you know, be very comfortable Mm -hmm. and didn't seem to be experiencing the trauma and that I was even just, uh, yeah, knowing about the situation. And Mm -hmm. so-
0: And so what did they know about death? Just to explain what they were saying. Right,
1: so that they would see each other again, Uh that families can be together forever, that God has a plan, that there was a pre-existence. They were very, very certain in their belief Mm -hmm. in a way that was confusing to me because I didn't think one could be so certain. And so I felt like either I don't know something or haven't figured something out that they Mm -hmm. clearly have, Mm -hmm. right, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: (laughs) or or they're all delusional, (laughs) right? (laughs) I can remember going home and being kind of frustrated Uh (laughs) Um, and confused, but still wanting, intrigued Mm -hmm. at the same time. And missionaries came knocking on my door several months later, and I had a lot of questions for them Mm -hmm. and began, you know, talking to them and many sets of missionaries. Actually, I was not the golden convert, Mm -hmm. Um, but at some point I decided that they answered enough questions that I had, that and that the way they lived was beautiful and life-affirming, it seemed to me. They lived by very good moral principles. I loved the people and the community. I was also, this was about age 19, I was very lonely. I wanted something different in my life. and. I just decided to give it a try, okay. <laughs> really. Okay. Um, without any, like, I still don't think I had this perfect testimony that uh-huh. it was all true, but right. like, I kind of hoped it was. So mm-hmm. I got on board and I began checking the Mormon boxes. I went to BYU Okay. and mm-hmm. I got married in the temple. Mm-hmm. And I had children and I stayed home with them um, and eventually I came to a point where, you know, I trusted the organization more and more, and I trusted the leaders. I believed, you know, at minimum, they were honest and working what, that they were being directed by God. Maybe not all the time, but most of the time. And, and definitely in the times it was essential and mattered is, okay. you know, where I got to a point. I, I still think I I wrestled with a lot of questions and had challenges with a lot of things, and I did what Mormons are taught to do, which is to put those unanswered things on a shelf (laughs) Mm. and just believe that at some point you'll probably get the answers, right? Like, Uh there's a lot that doesn't make sense. You just kind of focus on the things you do know and that do make sense and move forward. So. I was kind of accumulating a pretty good shelf, but... <laughs> it's getting heavier and heavier. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh-huh. But um, but on the, on the flip side of that, I was also having a, a variety of very positive experiences. Like what? And um, there was a time my husband was working for Microsoft and we were moved to China for six months. It was amazing to be able to contact members of the church easily over there, get information that I needed to about the city we were going to. And then when we landed there, that leaders from that organization met with us. One gave me a tour of the grocery store, showed me the ropes, right? So like Mormonism, because it's organized geographically, kind of like school districts, if mm. you can you mm-hmm. know imagine. So yeah. when you move into a home just like with school districts your kids are assigned a particular school and yeah. and then you're in a district um, mormons are organized into wards which are like the schools and stakes which are like the districts so mormons don't go church shopping um which has benefits and drawbacks <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> right because right. you're just like where you land that's your assigned community But when you do show up, there's people that are there to often just like help you, help you move in, you know, help you move out, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that if you get sick, they're there to bring you meals. And there's a tremendous sense of safety that can come from feeling you have this built in community. Mm -hmm. And if anything, you know, Mm -hmm. disastrous really happens, those people will be there for you. Have Mm -hmm. your back, help pick up the slack.
0: And that is so relieving and reassuring, and you don't feel alone, especially uh-huh. from what you were talking about, that you really felt lonely. So here, this was filling a lot of your need for community and uh-huh. connection. And as you're talking even about the positives, you know, I'm hearing you say it was good. And also, you know, not so good for these other reasons, but that you still can put a lot of things uh, maybe either out of your mind or on the shelf, as you were saying, yes, and yes. just focused on the positive. I'm curious, just to go back for one second. What tradition were you raised with before, or if any, before you got intrigued by this? Yeah, no tradition okay. actually.
1: Um, my parents became Catholic. Um, my mom was actually baptized Catholic when she was very little. My dad converted after I moved out, and. Um, my parents went back to the Catholic Church, right, or started attending. So, but as I was growing up, I didn't go to church. We didn't pray in our home. I did attend churches with friends, you know, a handful Mm -hmm. of times, including the LDS Church, and, but nothing regular, and it wasn't emphasized.
0: Okay, so here this was not only providing you with the community that you talked about, but with uh, a theology and and a belief system, which can feel good when you feel like that's not something you had or that you didn't realize maybe that you were missing. A lot of people yeah. have that feeling. Oh, mm-hmm. this is something that could have been good for me while I was growing up as well because it's working for me now, you know? Yes. as some, It helps you feel connected to something bigger
1: mm-hmm. than you, right? Okay, okay. and, the, and you know, it gives you a clear sense of purpose and that can feel great as right, well. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Gives you a lot of structure.
0: Okay. A lot of structure. Right. And for some people they they'll push against the structure. Other people feel safe within it. Mm-hmm. And I think for most people it's a little bit of both. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then when you were moving and you moved to this new place, you already had children by that point? Yes. Okay. Yes. Mm -hmm. all right how old were they
1: and when we went to china that was 2009 my youngest was eight
0: Mm
1: -hmm. um my middle son was 10 he turned 11 in china and my oldest
0: was 13 and turned 14 while we were there and with the children if they were asked i don't know if they were asked by the people around them about their tradition, about their life? Would they have been open about their belief system or the connection to the church? Well, China's kind of a unique place
1: in that uh, Mormonism is not one of the accepted five religions over there. And it's one of the few places where you will hear Mormon leadership preach from the pulpit, do not share the gospel. Like, they do not we were not allowed or we were, you know, strongly discouraged, maybe I should say, from um, sharing that. Mm -hmm. And so we would basically say if someone asked us, you know, I I appreciate that you're very curious. I would love to tell you more about our beliefs. However, your government has forbid us from doing so, so Uh we can't. Wow. Okay. <laughs> that's basically what we said there. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. But that's unusual. Most places Mormons would share
0: their mm-hmm. beliefs. Mm-hmm. Okay. Wow. It's interesting. So you needed to come up with kind of a script. Yes. <laughs> how to respond yes. And to uh, give something for your children to be able to say if they were ever asked as yeah, well. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. And so did it make you feel that there was this piece of you that needed to stay hidden? Did it make you worried at all?
1: Uh, no. Okay. Mm-mm. Okay. No. It Not at all. It was, uh, yeah, it was a good time there.
0: Okay. And actually. <laughs> that's, I'm glad. I'm glad to hear you had a good time. And how long were you there? We were there five and a half months. And then you left China, and where did you go after that?
1: So, well, we, we went to a variety of homes um, and places because no one will rent to you unless you can sign a year lease and insurance won't allow you to Uh um, do that. So it was a challenging time for six months to a year. And then we eventually settled in Redmond, Washington and we're met by an amazing, wonderful, ward community there that you know again to this day I love those people mm-hmm. <laughs> you know and we lived there for five years and then my husband got a job here in California and um he he was laid off at Microsoft we came here and began attending uh, the local ward mm-hmm. in our area mm-hmm. um and our oldest son Ian Stayed with my parents for a while and went to a school up in Washington State, and we were living here. And he came to visit us, and I really sensed some depression, and tried to talk to him about it, but he wasn't very interested in sharing much. Mm, okay. um, I also recognized that whenever I brought up anything that had to do with church he shut down and the look on his face, my gut instinct was something traumatic had happened to him and I was kind of scared. Yeah, of course. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. and so he went back to Washington and at one point he reached out to me and it was a call for help. Hmm. Um, My mom indicated he was sleeping maybe 20 hours a day
0: Oh, wow.
1: Right? He's like 19, 20 years old at this time, right? And that's, you know, something is horribly wrong. And after talking to him, I could tell he wasn't in a state he could make decisions Mm -hmm. for himself. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I asked my mom if she would help make make a doctor's appointment and, you know, begin a process of figuring out what we need to do. And I... My husband went up to the Seattle area, picked him up and drove back with him. And we just began working on, you know, first his physical health because uh, he had been indoors and sleeping so much. His labs came back, his vitamin D Mm
0: -hmm. was really low. Mm -hmm. His B
1: was down, a whole bunch of things, right? right? And also going into a psychiatrist and, you know, getting treated for some of the depression and... Um, and slowly he started to open up and I realized, you know, he was having, he was upset about a lot of things church related, but he was very scared to talk to us about it.
0: And why was he scared do you think in retrospect?
1: Yeah, well, I think he was in a place where he did not see that there was any positive outcome no matter what he did. Uh If he told us about his loss of faith, then the only options he could see were, one, we might reject him or reject what he was saying Mm -hmm. and not listen, which Mm -hmm. would be a rift between us and we would, you know, be hurt and he didn't want that to happen. The other option in his mind at the time was that we believe him, we lose our faith, we have all the pain he's had, and he would be the cause.
0: Right? Okay. This is all in his
1: brain. Right. Right. So, but he also could not handle this experience on his own. He had read some things that were extraordinarily upsetting to him. Hmm. And he couldn't work his way through without discussing it with someone, okay. <laughs> you know, to figure out how to handle that information, um, to work through the feelings, the, the hurt, the anger, you know, the, his own sense of loss of purpose mm-hmm. in his life.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so he really didn't want that to happen to us. Um, and so I think this is why he shut down for him. There was no way out.
0: Right. I mean, as you describe it, I'm thinking, yeah, uh, I would sleep 19 to 20 hours a day too. Right. Yeah. Cause if you feel like there is, there is no way out, mm-hmm. right. You're, you're backed into a corner Yeah. because he was being, uh, Deeply affected by something, not maybe wanting to be a part of it, but not wanting to take you away from it and feeling responsible towards you. He sounds like a very kind person Mm -hmm. and protective. Mm -hmm. And so his conscience was certainly going to be deeply affected if he affected your faith. And at the same time, I'm wondering, when you said that he read some things, what did he read that was so disturbing? Well, it's uh, called the CES letter. Okay. And
1: this is a letter that someone who had a, m- a man named Jeremy Reynolds um, wrote to a church, the director of the church education system mm-hmm. at a particular time mm-hmm. when he was going through his own faith crisis and a relative of hims basically said, you know, for sure there are people that have answers write this individual and explain what you've discovered and what you see as the problems and let's see what happens. Mm. Well, you know, he wrote this letter, which really detailed a lot of issues um, that are not faith promoting, I'll just say. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Uh Okay. And they're all put in one place. And so that was part of what he had read. And then he also found a community online of people who had read that and other things as Mm -hmm. well and who were talking about them. And so, you know, he realized, and then he did some of his own research, right? So he discovered things that he hadn't known before that really hit to the heart of the truth
0: claims of the church. Mm Okay. Okay. And so I'm curious what some of these things were, if you feel comfortable mentioning them. Because, yes, that's going to be at the heart, as you're saying, at the heart of it, of the conflict, the dissonance, Mm -hmm. the not knowing also whom to believe to. Right. Right? And so what were some of these pieces of information he was coming across that were so upsetting to him? So it's been a while since I've looked at the CES letter specifically, but I'll tell you
1: just what, you know, in general, some of the most... Um, the bigger themes that people are coming across that are very troubling to them. Um, One is Joseph Smith's practice of polygamy, that the correlated materials of the church have created a story about Joseph Smith and that he was married to this woman named Emma often referred to as his beloved Emma in all the church curriculum. And she's pretty much the only one who's brought up Mm -hmm. ever Mm -hmm. (laughs) in the church curriculum, Mm -hmm. right? Everyone kind of knows Brigham Young practiced polygamy. Not everyone does know that Joseph Smith practiced polygamy. Um, And if they do, they don't necessarily know all the details and the circumstances that surrounded his practice Mm -hmm. so it's more than he just practiced it but it was the methods he used to Mm -hmm. coerce young girls to convince them to marry him Mm -hmm. which can be very troubling to people um you know the youngest person he married was 14. um he basically offered them and their families eternal salvation you know, in some of the cases, this is documented, right? And um, and gave them a very short period of time to decide. It was all done in secret. His wife, Emma, did not know. Oh, wow. And even there was a ceremony, um, at one point, a mock ceremony that he had to be married to two women that she when she finally said, okay, fine, you can practice polygamy, but I get to pick them. Uh She picked two women who he had already previously been sealed to and then created a mock ceremony. He didn't tell her that, right? right? And kind of got remarried. So the the level of deception towards his wife was very extreme. Um, People have a very hard time, you know, with that. And it doesn't align up with even the very revelations Joseph received and that are written down that explain how polygamy should be practiced Mm -hmm. so he wasn't following the revelations he was given basically in his own practice of this um so polygamy is a really really big issue for a lot of people and um that you know when they find out emma was like the 23rd woman sealed to him even though she was his only legal married wife did you say 23rd yeah
0: <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> right?
1: right so you would think that you know if the sealing power had been restored and mm-hmm. he could be together with whoever mm-hmm. he sealed to forever mm-hmm. that he would want to be sealed to the one woman he was married to
0: right.
1: immediately mm-hmm. right yeah. and that's not what happened so there was a lot, a lot of secrecy that went on here. Mm-hmm. So this is not the Joseph Smith that we were told about in correlated church curriculum. Um, another really big issue is, is the first vision. Um, the story that Mormons have always been told is that, you know, Joseph Smith, a 14 year old boy, didn't know which church to join, um, wanted really to know what what was truth, right? And he goes to a grove and he prays and he asks God and two personages appear and they are God, the father and Jesus Christ. And they basically, you know, tell him that none of them are true. And, you know, this is going to be the opening up of this new dispensation, Mm -hmm. you know, and he had a special work to do. Um, However, there is a version of the first vision. There's several versions of the first vision, okay? Okay. The one that we're told comes in 1838, but the one that I find most troubling is one that was in Joseph Smith's own handwriting in 1832. It's the only one in his own handwriting. Mm -hmm. It's the first one yeah. Written down at all. And so it's closest in time to the actual event. Mm. And when you read it, it is very clear that it was a very personal experience that he had. He was seeking personal forgiveness. Um, he had already decided before he went to pray that none of the churches were true mm. by reading the scriptures.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, you know, this was life changing for me when I read this. But basically, he didn't ask the question. The founding question that missionaries for decades have told converts is the most important question, which is which of all the churches should he join? Right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like this is a big deal in Mormonism. This is before the Book of Mormon. This is, you know, this was... The purpose he prayed and what happened after was only one personage appears Mm -hmm. in the 1832 account. Mm -hmm. So the church has now come out with essays Mm -hmm. and they're acknowledging these things, but the way they're acknowledging them is still with a a spin and a story as if all these accounts are consistent. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So this is another level and layer of but wait. (laughs) No, they're not. (laughs) Right? You know, you cannot say Uh they are consistent Mm -hmm. if they are different in the very details you have long told everyone matter the most. Right. Right. So it's not the fact that the accounts have different details. Of course, like nobody. But they they act as if that's the issue. Well, of course, all accounts will you know this you know have some different details, yeah. right? But they're like they're they're consistent. Mm-hmm. And but no, they're they're really in the most important
0: pieces mm-hmm. um, are not right. So this is so powerful, and you're right. I mean, from every tradition. Uh, the story's going to shift a bit depending upon how it's remembered and who wrote that account of it. Mm-hmm. Same thing with just our memory of things that happened to us when we were younger, right? It's always going to be sort of filtered through the way we remember it. But but when you first of all have this experience, like your son was having, and then you were eventually having, where you hear that the thing you were told. Is just not true or just not true at all, mm-hmm. then it has this kind of cascading impact, this domino effect. And then you can start to wonder what else you're being told that's not true. Yes. And that is huge. That that is it it is so disorienting and it really gets you off balance. I mean, the other part is when you were talking about this story of that that this is what the missionaries were telling people that, you know, he was needing to decide which tradition was uh-huh, true and uh-huh. which one to hold on to or abandon or whatever that that is not only just a story but that's the the cornerstone right yes. so if something is a cornerstone and it's pulled out then it shifts the foundation yes and so that's the i mean that's the yeah. feeling i'm getting as you're exactly. talking. exactly
1: so it's pulled out but then on top of it this institution that you trusted and you see evidence that it's like so clear Mm -hmm. that they are still not forthcoming and telling the truth, right? So when they finally do say, and yes, there are all these different first vision stories, then the trust in the organization as a whole just falls out. (laughs) Yeah, so um, for my husband, the issue was the method in which the Book of Mormon was translated. Mm-hmm. Um, the story is that Joseph got these gold plates and that he translated them, mm-hmm. meaning the plates were important. Mm-hmm. And God gave him special instruments called the Yerman and Thummim, and he used those in the translation. Well, the, the real story, which is now coming out and the church does now acknowledge, is that Joseph used a seer stone and put it in a hat and looked in the hat, and basically, I mean, it's more like, channeled. That's channeled. the word I was looking for. Okay. It's more like he channeled the Book of Mormon. I was of tra- transportation. Okay. I didn't write, so yes. the plates uh-huh. were not necessary. The Yerimam mm-hmm. Thummim is not necessary. Translation no longer means translation, is what this comes down to. Okay. Okay? Like, it was very described very literally, and they show children pictures of Joseph and looking at the plates, and, you know, that really there was work involved. This wasn't magic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my husband was approached on people from people on his mission saying things about the seer stone. And he's like, I don't know where you heard that. Right. Okay. <laughs> but okay. that's so not true. Right. Mm-hmm. And then to find out this many years later, well, actually it was.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> and mm-hmm. this other story is wrong. And he had felt like he had a spiritual experience, a confirmation about. Joseph and the way he had translated mm-hmm. the Book of Mormon, the way it came to be. Mm-hmm. And for him, then this suddenly called into question what that spiritual feeling meant. You know, mm. the church had always indicated that it was truth, right. it meant truth. Well, now he's had a spiritual experience that did not lead to truth. Mm-hmm. And now it's shown. Yeah. You know and yeah. even admitted by the church <laughs> okay. so now we can't trust that anymore hmm. okay. right right Very so right. besides that the um i would say the book of abraham is the other probably biggest issue most people have and this is a translation piece too but okay. um this is another book of scripture which joseph said he translated in it by his own hand mm. or hey, well that the, the The scroll was written by Abraham in his own hand and Mm -hmm. that he translated what was on the scroll into this book of Abraham, Mm -hmm. right? Again, a literal translation. The church didn't tell people that they actually found the scroll, (laughs) that nothing on it matches anything that Joseph translated, That it's actually a funerary text, um, Mm -hmm. a common funerary text. There's so much evidence that shows that all the apologetic answers that people try to give as, you know, how this could still be Mm
0: -hmm. scripture. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
1: Again, goes back to channeling as one, or Mm -hmm. maybe that wasn't really the scroll. But when you look at the evidence as a whole, it doesn't pan out. There's, There's no way you can logic your way. Right. Through it all. Right. (laughs) Except for that. He thought maybe he thought he was translating, but he clearly wasn't. And even now that they're admitting it, it's on a really obscure place on their website. They don't really talk about it. There's been no announcements made. Mm -hmm. It's not like, oh, and we used to teach this and this was an error. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Now we are correcting those things. This is what we're now teaching. Mm -hmm. So there's no segue. It's just like reality was presented now on this obscure place on the church's website. This new reality is presented with all of the controversial pieces that people have that are, you know, causing them to lead the church. And I'll tell you, this is dividing members of the church because some people know the old narrative. Yeah. Some people know the new you know, I know many, many active believing Mormons who don't even read the essays on the church mm-hmm, website. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or they think the church website has been hacked. Like this is how deep that belief goes right. in, the, in this old
0: narrative. Oh, that it was hacked. That's mm-hmm. very interesting. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah, because some people are not wanting to give up their belief system and that they can rely upon it being the truth and you know i right. we we can understand that certainly i think when you're talking also about how translations can shift i mean they always can and when when people say to me you know that that uh, any kind of bible is the word of god i always wonder about that because i think it depends on which translation you got and if it was a Latin translation of, let's say, um, the First Testament. Some people call it the Old Testament. Well, I don't think Latin was big in the Middle East all those years ago. (laughs) Uh, And have people been able to study the text in the original languages, like cuneiform and others? Probably not. Mm -hmm. And so there's always going to be this uh, representation and misrepresentation. The thing that I think is so powerful about your story is the lack of acknowledgement. Mm -hmm. And so when the system, sort of when the parents in the organization, the people you look up to aren't doing what feels like taking responsibility and clarifying and Mm -hmm. saying, yes, this wasn't okay that we did this. And now we're going to change so that there's more transparency, so that there's more uniformity, Mm -hmm. so that you can rely on what's being taught and you can rely on what's being said then there's a piece missing Uh that people are really needing. It's also hard, I think, when you're a missionary because you're upholding the beliefs, you're defending the beliefs a lot of the time, and then you're spreading the beliefs. And then if you find out that those beliefs are not necessarily based in truth or reality, you can feel like you were kind of used as part of a system that now doesn't feel right to you. Yeah. And so I'm yeah, sure that, 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 was that very You hard. trust
1: these leaders mm-hmm. to be as honest yeah. as they ask you to be. Oh, and, you know, well this said. is another key piece in Mormonism, mm-hmm. but, you know, to go to the temple, to have a temple recommend you have an interview, it used to be once every year, but now it's I think every two okay. or has been for a while, but really one of the questions they ask you is, are you honest in all your dealings with your fellow man? Mm. Honesty is very clearly defined in a very basic um, manual in Mormonism called the Gospel Principles Mm. Manual. And it clearly states that omitting information and sometimes silence Mm. is a form of dishonesty. You know, so this, the leadership is not keeping the very standards here Mm -hmm. that they've asked their people to keep. Mm -hmm. And uh, some people call this idea lying for the Lord, (laughs) you know, meaning this idea that you need to protect the image of the church at all costs. Whatever you share must be faith-promoting. Anything that you, you know, no good Mormon would ever say or do anything that would possibly harm another person's testimony Mm -hmm. is... Mm -hmm. You know, and, and loyalty is a characteristic that is very um, sometimes directly, but often very indirectly, but still, you know, taught
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> that that is important and expected. Right. OK, right. And that idea of lying for the Lord, I mean, I've, I've heard phrases like that from different organizations. There's another uh, one years ago. I remember learning the term that they used, which was heavenly deception. So it Mm -hmm. kind of didn't matter Mm -hmm. because it all kind of works out in the end. Right. You know, exactly. And Mm -hmm. so that's, that's troubling. Mm -hmm. That is troubling. Okay. So let's keep going with your story. So you were talking about then your husband and the impact that this was starting to have on him. And then what happened? Yeah. So, well, back to my son,
1: Uh, though, right. Mm -hmm. Um, During the time we were trying to get him physically healthy. Yeah my other son, Sean, (laughs) um, put his papers in and decided to go on a mission. And and it it really seemed to happen so fast to me. (laughs) But it wasn't really until Sean left that Ian began to open up um, and be physically healthy enough, (laughs) really to begin to think more clearly, to not need as much sleep. But he and I started taking walks I sensed, you know, when he started to talk about the church, again he would shut himself down. Mm-hmm. And I can remember at one point turning to him and, and saying, Look, you know, if I rather have you talk to me, mm-hmm. no matter what you say about the church. Like I if you're mad yeah. about something, mm-hmm. if you want to swear about it, like basically I care about our relationship, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and And he heard that. um, This part is actually kind of a very spiritual experience to me because, as a believing Mormon at that time, of course, I was so sad that he didn't want to go to church. I wanted my whole family there on the pews, you know, Mm -hmm. all together. I wanted this ideal life that I thought could only happen if we were all, Mm -hmm. you know, connected through our religious beliefs. I didn't know if I could let that go. And I had this spiritual experience, which is I, the only way I know how to define it, call it my higher self, call it God, whatever you want to call it, but almost, you know, a clear impression or voice in my own head that said, he cannot heal until you let this go. You know, and what's interesting is I I still don't know exactly Mm -hmm. how I did it, but there came, but I opened myself up to the possibility that I could, you know, that I opened up to that maybe what he really needed from me was to know that I wanted him to heal more than I wanted anything else. Mm. And so I began to focus on that and offer that to him really, in in a way that I really did believe and connect, he felt it. And everything shifted in our relationship. He opened up more. He trusted me more. I still believed at that point there were answers to all of his questions and that we would figure it out together. Mm -hmm. He wanted to have his name removed off the records of the church. And we kind of came to this little compromise at that time, which was, I just said, would you give me like how about just give me a couple of months to look into this and let's mm-hmm. keep talking mm-hmm. and you know would th- would that be okay and at some point of course you can do that if that's what you feel is right mm-hmm. you know i'd really love to have the opportunity to you know check some of these things out and continue these discussions mm-hmm. and he believed in my love enough at that point that he was like okay sure mom i, d- I don't know what's happening i trust you <laughs> And so I began my own research. And this is when, you know, things were not clicking. The way, what I found was not what I expected. Uh, Then I went to my husband and I said, I can't do this alone. And he had had a lot of blinders on. He grew up in in an Orthodox, you know, believing family. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And he's very logical and scientific. And I, he tells me now he kind of knew if he looked too far, it might, it might be a problem for him. Right. Okay. <laughs> right? And, um, and plus he had so many positive and wonderful experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but he also, you know, really didn't see an option to devastate his mom. Uh, his parents had gotten divorced. His, his brother, um, was, killed, he was actually, that was the funeral I actually went to, the 14-year-old boy who was shot by his son, (gasps) or or by his friend. friend. And so, um, so, you know, and his, and his youngest brother had been, you know, more rebellious and didn't stay with the church. So he was like this, the yeah. son, the good son, yes. the one that was gonna stay strong mm-hmm. and stable for his mom, and so, you know, he he just didn't look. So then he found the the seer stone and the hat,
0: mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know,
1: information, mm-hmm. and and that shifted everything for him. So okay. now we're in this kind of whirlwind, and I call it a realoque.
0: Okay. <laughs> Real quick. Ooh, that's
1: a I realized there was not a word, you know, an emotion I could use. I had to make up my own, mm-hmm. but it really did l- feel like almost like the ground beneath me was shaking. I mean, it felt very disorienting. Mm-hmm. Right. That shelf that I told you about all came down. Mm -hmm. And not only that, but the whole darn house that it was attached to, Mm -hmm. like, fell on the ground. And it's like I'm looking around and suddenly I can see at a distance. I can see things I've never seen before, Mm -hmm. right? But um, all around me is this giant mess and I don't know where to start.
0: I really want to thank Claudine for coming on the show today and talking about her experiences. And next week, as I mentioned in the intro, you will hear the continuation of her story and the changes that occurred in her life and in the lives of her children. This week, Claudine touched upon a few issues that I think are pivotal. She talked about being a part of a community. And when you're a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, You are part of a community that comprises many millions of people around the globe. Claudine talked about how necessary and how wonderful it was at times in her life and in the life of her family to be a part of a larger community and to know that there were built-in safeguards, people she could rely upon to be there for her, and people she could also be there for, who were all part of the church in different cities around the world. And many people find that the hardest part of leaving a group is the idea that you're leaving a community and a feeling of connection and sometimes the feeling of safety that goes along with that. We all know how important that is for most people and it's reflected in many arenas. Like when we try to welcome people to new places and we go over to visit someone who's just moved into our neighborhood to introduce ourselves. When people start at new schools, There are meet and greets and opportunities for people to meet each other. In new organizations, summer camps, jobs, we know that it's important for people to not just feel alone and to feel isolated when there are other people around. And as a client of mine once said, this is why name tags were invented. That is in direct response to our evolutionary need and our evolutionary development and survival that we are social beings there are two issues though that i want to address that do not undermine the power of this sort of connection but these issues that i come across very often with my clients are the following people will often tell me that when they were raised with a belief system either that or that they adopted it as adults it was often offered to them as a means of safety. And they did truly believe that believing the right way was what was keeping them safe. And while I don't ever want to interfere with any belief system, especially if it gives you a feeling of protection, I do think it's important to mention that safety is not necessarily automatic and should not be promised, actually, even though it often is. Some clients of mine have talked about how, in retrospect, they see that they put themselves in harm's way because they believed that they were under spiritual protection and then could walk down dark alleys without anything bad happening to them or could take other sorts of risks without needing to be aware of their surroundings or taking any precautions. It can cause people to take those kinds of risks, and when they survive, then they often feel that it was because they had that belief system that they were protected, rather than perhaps it just being a matter of luck that they were not attacked and that something horrible didn't happen. Again, while I would never want to take anyone's sense of security away from them, even if it's not something that comes from a tangible place, but rather a spiritual place, I do still think it's important and responsible for me to say that I think it's important to have both things in mind simultaneously, meaning that it's more than okay for you to have a particular belief system that makes you feel protected, but to remember, as far as I see it, that you need to partner with that belief system to keep yourself safe, that you still want to be aware a belief system can be misinterpreted as a magical power or over-interpreted as a superpower. And that's, unfortunately, where some things can go wrong and some things can happen that could have been prevented. And if you're part of an organization that tells you that it's wrong of you to engage your logical mind and take in the evidence of your senses, as Dr. Margaret Singer would say, and... That somehow it proves that you're a non-believer or a sinner if you take precautions, if you doubt, and that all you need to do is believe, then you'll be fine. I want to tell you to proceed with caution, with getting any further involved in that group or staying in that group, because there is a danger in life of becoming too passive and just going on automatic pilot. It's good to remember that priests still go for checkups. And rabbis wear seatbelts. And members of religious organizations sometimes lock their doors at night and move away from windows when there are hurricanes and go underground when there's a tornado. And there's nothing wrong with that. It does not mean that they have compromised themselves spiritually. They're not proving their disbelief. They're not necessarily interfering with what they believe to be God's plan, if that's what they believe in, but instead they're using wisdom assessing what's needed in a situation and necessary in those moments to protect themselves and their loved ones. So I see it just as a good idea. I'm thinking of a quote actually by Stephen Hawking, where he says, I've noticed even people who claim everything is predestined, and that we can do nothing to change it, still look before they cross the road. So The other issue I come across is that sometimes people feel that in order to remain a part of a community that makes them feel safe and good and connected, that they have to hide a part of themselves, an important part of themselves, sometimes their true selves. So there is a sense that as long as they come across, at least on the surface, as living a life that is acceptable to the people in the group or believing as they should, according to the leadership, then they'll be safe and will still be part of the fold. Yet this has a strong psychological impact on many people who know that they are just able to remain accepted members of the community because they have kept their lives, their feelings, their histories, their true identities, and the way they self-identify a secret. And when you are reminded at certain times in the quiet moments of your life, that your acceptance in a community is in fact conditional, and that people love you and accept you, but they love and accept the person you are feeling the need to pretend to be, it causes a great internal conflict and some feelings of fear about being found out and depression that can come with the awareness that, or the assumption that, if people really knew who you were, they would no longer accept you. So, I support all those out there who are living within a community where they are only showing a part of themselves because they think they can only show a part of themselves, and I hope one day things change for them. It can feel very lonely to know you have not done anything wrong per se, but still, at a moment's notice, if your true self is revealed, you may have to deal with private or public shaming. Or you may be pushed out and discarded, even though, again, you've done nothing wrong. I remember hearing Chris Rock once say that when you first meet people, you don't meet them. You meet their representative. People want to appear a certain way and come across a certain way at the beginning, and that's easy to do at first and for a short amount of time. But throughout a lifetime, it can wear away at you. And so, again, I truly hope one day that spiritual communities broaden what they see as acceptable and normal, especially if it is the way people are born, the way they are naturally wired, the way they naturally feel, and the way they naturally love. If not, religious communities will continue to always have a significant amount of members who are not able to truly connect and ever feel truly honest and honestly loved and accepted. I also hope that changes, especially because of a conversation I recently had. I was speaking recently to a man who was a leader within a spiritual community that talked about God being light. And he said that it was a highly conservative organization in its thinking and in its belief system. And what he realized after he left and then became a safe person for others to talk to and turn to who had also left that community was how much he at the time had thought the belief system encouraged people to live a good life, but in retrospect, rather encouraged many to live a lie. And as he so beautifully said, that while he was sincerely believing he was bringing people closer to the light, he could see now that he was unknowingly pushing people into the shadows. Talk to you next week. Indoctrination is available for download on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and more. Please support indoctrination at patreon.com indoctrination. Subscribers receive bonus episodes, interviews, and other cool goodies. Send us an email at indoctrinationshow@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Thank you for your support. And if you can't become a paid subscriber, I will be so grateful for any and all support that you show whether it's subscribing on SoundCloud, YouTube, or Patreon, or giving us a like on our Indoctrination Facebook page or following our Twitter and Reddit feeds. Thank you for keeping up with us and for keeping the show going. Until next time, Rachel.